Hi everyone! As you can tell by the sound of my voice, I am not Nick Ronan, who is our usual editor um, for SF Weekly. I'm actually, my name is Grace, um, I'm one of the two staff writers um, and one of the three full-time staff members um, for the SF Weekly. And this week, our editor um, is on a very well-deserved vacation after helming the ship through a horribly disastrous year since he first took charge of SF Weekly last spring. So today I will be hosting things. Please bear with me. I'm not a podcast person, um, but I'm going to do my best. <laughs> yeah, so today we also have uh, Ben with me here. Um, ben is my co-writer, as I'm sure people who follow SF Weekly know. Um, and Ben has been so patient and gracious through this entire process by fielding a ridiculous number of copy editing requests uh, from me as we make it through the week without our regular editor. So how are you doing today, Ben? I'm good. Um, I, I didn't find the copy editing too bad. I, I enjoy reading all our stuff carefully and making sure we catch all the little mistakes. Um, and, and Grace, you've been uh, doing an amazing job picking up the slack from Nick. Um, and so hopefully we can keep that up with this podcast. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much. Um, it's definitely been kind of wild uh, seeing if the weekly can function with only two full-time staff members and one part-time intern. Um, I think the, the Sunday evening slash Monday morning, it was around midnight uh, before um, the week started. <laughs> I was sort of pacing around in my room thinking like, oh my God, can we do this? <laughs> can we actually do this? Um, and that's when I wrote this a letter from the editor or a letter from me um, at sort of um, a weird insomnia writing hour. Um, but yeah, how do you think things are going so far? I think it's good. Yeah. And I think uh, your letter was great this week. And that's that's like a print exclusive thing. So you've got to make sure to pick up the print issue to see Grace's um, hilarious letter this week. But I, I think, uh, you know, insomnia induced writing can sometimes be the best writing I think you you showed that this week. <laughs> I 100% agree. I feel like the concept of like writing as like a nine to five job is sometimes strange to me in that I understand that writing does require work. It requires sort of like um, a semi-manufactured process of like just creating sentences, right? But also, and I don't know if you feel this way too, I'm really... Um, Sometimes, I don't know, when inspiration hits, inspiration hits. And for me, inspiration tends to hit around 2 a.m. <laughs> um, when I'm trying to fall asleep, which is so horrible, so not conducive to work-life balance. Totally. No, I, I know what you mean. Writing is definitely uh, an art. And it's uh, for those of fortunate enough to have a full-time job doing writing stuff, uh, it is weird to fit it into that 9 to 5 uh, culture. And sometimes that feels kind of artificial. <laughs> yeah um i'm always <laughs> at like nine in the morning i'm sort of thinking like okay brain it's time to start it's time to start doing the creativity thing please totally. yeah that's <laughs> um, what the coffee's for for me oh god yeah i'm actually so curious this is sort of like a pivot but i'm very curious about how um how things have been for you because i know you started at the weekly when we were still um working completely remotely and we still technically are complete working completely remotely, but how, what has it been like um, joining a new newspaper without having ever met all of the staff, um, even though the staff is like literally three people? Right. Well, I think it's been easier because there's just three of us and the occasional uh, wonderful intern helping out. So it's not like there's like this whole, 
a massive group of people that I like need to meet someday. Um, so it's, I feel like, you know, between you and Nick, I've gotten to know you guys decently well on our, our zooms and our phone calls. Um, but I definitely <laughs> look forward to the day when we can all uh, be in the office again together and, um, hopefully have a larger team too and, and, uh, develop a bit of a, a workplace culture. That's something that I, I looked forward to when I, I joined the weekly. Um, but then <laughs> it, it all had to happen over zoom. And we're, oh, we're, doing, we're doing our best. I mean, here we are, you know, bantering on a podcast. So, uh, you know, could be worse. Yeah, I think I think I write pretty entertaining slash funny emails. <laughs> so I hope that Definitely. sort of makes up for the lack of like an actual in-person workplace. <laughs> <Yes>. um, <laughs> Yeah, things could definitely be worse. Um, but I definitely think that over the past year, everyone's been sort of having all these conversations about work, uh, workplace culture, the nine to five, the 40 hour work, work week. And that's tangentially uh, related to the story that you wrote for our issue this week about universal basic income or guaranteed income. And for readers, if either of those terms sound familiar, it's probably because uh, 2020 presidential Democratic candidate Andrew Yang actually uh, repopularized the term when he was running for president. He sort of made that his whole thing. Um, but universal basic income or guaranteed income has had a um, long slash ongoing history in the Bay Area. And Ben, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that today. Yeah, definitely. So um, my story is about all of these uh, guaranteed income programs getting underway in the Bay Area, um, either, either in the planning stages or um, that are actually already happening. Um, and as part of the, the story, I looked into the history of this idea of uh, universal basic income or a guaranteed income, um, and it, it, it in its modern iteration um, kind of originates with uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Actually, who in 1967 um, praised this idea that you know the the best way to eliminate poverty is to just give people money so they're not in poverty. Um, that was in 1967 in his. Uh, final book. That was when he was kind of turning uh, in an explicitly anti-capitalist direction right before he was assassinated. Um, and then kind of funnily, uh, th those kinds of ideas were taken up by Republicans in the Nixon administration, uh, namely Donald Rumsfeld and Dick Cheney, um, who was Rumsfeld's uh, deputy, um, sort of in this economic development role that uh, Rumsfeld had in the Nixon administration. Uh, and they ran these guaranteed income pilots in cities across America um, that that were very successful, but um, they weren't able to actually get uh, larger scale programs passed through Congress. Um, so those two moments kind of lay the foundation for um, what's been happening much more recently, where uh, Andrew Yang, coming out of this sort of tech ethos, um, has really embraced this idea of universal basic income as a potential solution to all of the problems that could come from AI and automation and people like truck drivers and store clerks losing their jobs as uh, computers and robots uh, are, are being used in more and more of the economy. Um, and so he, as you said, Grace, made, made that such a big plank of his presidential um, campaign. And um, meanwhile, a lot of other people in Silicon Valley um, have been really interested in this, um, both kind of in a, a, a sort of as an innovative 
form of public policy and also as a way of head of, heading off uh, potential social and economic dislocation brought on by automation. Um, and so, so some of those um, funders were really excited when um, Michael Tubbs, who was mayor of Stockton from 2016 to 2020, was elected at age 26, kind of a, a wonderkind uh, out of Stanford. So he was kind of in this scene as well. Um, he developed this basic income pilot program in Stockton. That was sort of the first um, really high profile uh, uh, basic income experiment, guaranteed income experiment um, in, in the sort of recent resurgence of this phenomenon. Um, and uh, after he actually uh, lost his, his mayoral reelection, um, he's gone on to become kind of uh, a nationwide champion of other programs, including the ones that we're seeing right now in the Bay Area. Um, so that's sort of like an abbreviated history of how all this got started. Yeah, that's so fascinating. Um, I apologize if this is sort of a nitty gritty um, semantics question, but before I use universal basic income and guaranteed income as interchangeable terms, but I'm actually wondering, is there a difference between the two? Yeah, definitely. It's a really important distinction, actually. Uh, so universal basic income is uh, universal, which means that everybody or um, almost everybody would have access to it. Um, it's, it's the kind of thing that um, Yang was talking about in his presidential campaign, that every American adult would get $1,000 a month, um, no strings attached, no matter how rich you are, um, something like that. So that's a universal basic income. It's, it's uh, for everybody. Guaranteed income is more targeted. So it's, um, it's the same concept. It's, it's a no strings attached, um, you know, paycheck essentially every, every couple of weeks, or every month. Um, but it's, it, it, it's usually referring to a program where, um, you know, it's targeting people of a certain income bracket in a certain geographic location, um, people of a certain demographic, um, things like that. So, so what we're seeing in the Bay Area are these guaranteed income programs. And so in Oakland, you've got a program that's targeting, targeting 600 um, low-income families that are under uh, 50% of the, the median income there. And actually, part of that program will be specifically targeting um, just this one community in East Oakland. That's kind of part of the experimental design of it to see how um, you know, this community could change beyond the outcomes of the individual recipients uh, of the guaranteed income. And then in San Francisco, uh, there's a program getting underway to provide a guaranteed income for artists um, who, who have been suffering from the pandemic. Um, and then there's another program in San Francisco that's still being developed that uh, would provide a guaranteed income to Black and Pacific Islander mothers who are pregnant and then in the early years of or the early months of their, uh, um, their motherhood once they've had their, their child. Um, and so that's really geared towards um, improving uh, health outcomes for for mothers and young children in, in those communities. Um, so you know you can have these different guaranteed program guaranteed income programs targeted at certain people who um, you know have been shown to that could really benefit from from that money. Um, but but the idea I think for a lot of these programs is to kind of provide more evidence for ultimately getting to something closer like like guaranteed income um, or at the very least. Uh, you know, for people who are living under the poverty line, potentially a, a federal level program that says um, everyone who's who's making less than that 
um, can can get a guaranteed income from the federal government. Yeah, so something that I think um, caught my eye while reading your piece was how guaranteed income programs uh, sort of echo aspects of reparations for Black people. And I was wondering if you could talk about um, the different parallels and nuances of that. Definitely. So uh, LA Times columnist Erica Smith um, really explicitly made this connection in, in a recent column about the Oakland program, um, which it, the Oakland program was initially framed um, in terms of it, it being exclusively for people of color. Um, but they, they actually did kind of walk that language back a little bit and um, say that, you know, there's no sort of racial criteria for who's eligible. Um, as I mentioned, San Francisco's program for, for Black and Pacific Islander mothers is obviously racial, racially targeted. Um, but, you know, the reality is for this Oakland program, for other programs that are targeting low-income people in the Bay Area, um, no matter whether there's an explicit racial, uh, tar you know, criteria for who gets to receive the money, um, if there's a economic criteria, very likely the people who will be receiving it would be um, very often Black people, very often Latino people, um, you know, who have been... Uh, caught up in systems of um, racial oppression for generations. This is the kind of thing that um, reparations for black people is trying to, to correct for, you know, to provide some kind of um, recognition and then, um, you know, help for things like discrimination in housing and healthcare uh, in the workforce. Um, and, and that is a movement that's actually picking up steam in California um, with a, a proposal uh, at the actually, it's not a proposal anymore, a, a effort at the state level um, to create a task force, uh, you know, with these state level political things, there's a lot of steps, but a task force to then study uh, what reparations for black people in California could look like. Um, and there have been efforts at the federal level for that, too. Um, but I think what we're seeing is that this is sort of similar to this idea of, of uh, universal basic income. Um, we're seeing these programs in the Bay Area acting as experiments or pilots that could provide evidence for these um, loftier goals, whether it be uh, universal basic income, whether it be reparations, um, things sort of in that realm. Thank you so much for explaining all of that. Um, I'm wondering, uh, when we're talking about universal basic income or guaranteed income, um, in concept, all of, all of this, you know, sounds really great. Um, I'm wondering, are there any naysayers out there or any critics out there? Um, and sort of what are, what are they saying? Yeah, well, there definitely are economists who are, who are worried about, um, for instance, a, a guaranteed income program that really has a, a income floor because there's thinking that if uh, people just have this this source of income that they always have access to, um, there's there's less of an incentive for them to sort of get a better job or or improve their personal income. Um, that result hasn't exactly transpired in a lot of real world experiments with this kind of thing. So in the Stockton program, um, you know, people the the actual rate of employment actually increased by twelve percent among the people who received the guaranteed income as opposed to the control group there. So there's ways in which the opposite effect can happen, where people actually have the freedom to then, you know, take time off work, 
um, or, or lose their second job so that they can work on applying for a better job or go back to school or something like that. Um, but, but definitely that is a concern that, you know, um, th there could be some like bad incentives if you're, if you're thinking about it from like an economist's perspective. Um, you know, there's also the, the question of how are you going to pay for it? That's always uh, uh, kind of <laughs> looming in the background of these conversations. Uh, these programs in the Bay Area are largely funded by uh, philanthropists um, and, and uh, donors. So, you know, how do you scale that? How do you then create a federal program where um, there's certainly no philanthropist who can fund um, $1,000 for every American or even for every American living in poverty, um, that that's going to require new thinking about where that money comes from. Um, and, and as people are thinking about that, the question is, um, how do you protect existing benefits programs? I think there are people who are concerned that if something like guaranteed income really takes off, that could um, create an opening for people to eliminate things like SNAP, food stamps, or Section 8 housing vouchers, other benefits that people um, that really help a lot of people, um, but that could maybe be seen as extraneous if you've got a guaranteed income thing for everybody. Um, so yeah, those are some of the the complicated um, concerns and, and promises I think that that could come with with guaranteed income or, or UBI. Yeah, thank you so much, Ben, for answering my questions um, and for writing this story about universal basic income and guaranteed income. These are, you know, interlinked concepts that I was super curious about, and I'm sure other people were too, but really didn't know much about before um, this story. Uh, up next, uh, we have a segment from Veronica Irwin, one of our um, freelancers, about sideshows. Uh, so before we hand it off to her, um, thank you so much, Ben, for being on this podcast with me, for helping me hold down the fort <laughs> as Nick is away. Um, but that's all from us for now. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Grace, uh, for hosting and um, your, your great questions. And um, thanks for holding it down this week, too, while Nick has been away. That has been very helpful for everyone who, who is involved with the weekly. Hi there, this is Veronica Irwin, freelance contributor for SF Weekly. Today I'm here with Yapasua Zazaboy, owner of the technology consulting and training business Sideways Cafe in Oakland. Our conversation today, however, is going to focus on a series of documentaries he made in 2006 by the same name, Sideways. In it, he covers the history and culture of the Bay Area Sideshow, which if you don't know what a sideshow is, stay tuned because I'm sure he could explain it a little better than I could. Yap was born and raised in the Bay Area and has been my guide as I work on an SF Weekly story about the local car culture. Welcome to the show, Yap. Thank you for having me, Veronica. So just to start, for listeners who don't really understand what this means, they might be thinking of a, of a clown car or something related to a circus, how would you define a sideshow? So the easiest way to define a sideshow is an explanation that was given to us by Richie Rich some years ago. And 
it goes based on an Oakland term called siding. Most people probably don't know what siding is, but and, and I'm saying side as in leaning and leaning to the side in your car. In Oakland, people like their their cars. They like to fix up their cars, paint them, um, you know, tune them, race them, or just in general like to show off in them. And so it was kind of it was kind of like a like a street competition. You would pull up at a light, somebody else would pull up at a light, and it was there was always this recognition of of yeah, I, I see you, you know, I see you, you, you see me too. And people got to calling that term siding. You know, he was siding on them. Just it was just basically a term for like just just being real flashy driving through the town. And that's where the term side show came from. So it was a side show, it was a show of people siding in their cars. And essentially, that's that's what the side show was was birthed as. It was it was like the show for show offs. It's, I did not realize that. I definitely thought it was some like twisted reference on like a circus sideshow or something like that. I did not realize that it had that history. I thought that's dope, right? <laughs> yeah, I love that. I love that. And you bring up Richie Rich. Obviously, sideshows have a pretty well known soundtrack. Um, can you tell me the story of how you found your first sideshow and kind of how the Bay Area soundtrack played into that? Yeah, the, my first sideshow is it's it's a remarkable story. Um, during our our youth, we used to do a lot of running around in San Francisco, and we barely even knew what Oakland was. Um, if you if you had asked me when I was fifteen or sixteen where Oakland was, I probably thought it was in New York. For some reason, I used to mix up Oakland and Brooklyn like they were one and the same. <laughs> and you know, shout out to our to our Brooklyn folks because I, I heard Brooklyn and Oakland are are very similar in many ways. Um, so one 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 afternoon, one evening, uh, myself and a few friends, we decided that we were going to cross the bridge. That was a big deal to us, crossing the Bay Bridge from San Francisco to Oakland. And the only thing that we knew was like the soundtrack of, of Too Short. You know, we knew MC Hammer and other, other artists back then. But as far as our guide into Oakland, we were listening to Too Short coming across the Bay Bridge into Oakland. And in one of these Too Short songs, he mentions Seminary Avenue. So as we're on the 580, we didn't even know what 580 was. We're on the freeway and we see Seminary Avenue. So we get off. And as we're headed down Seminary Avenue, the next time we, we recognize something, we come across a street called Foothill Boulevard. And we're like, oh, he, he said that, Foothill Boulevard. That was in the song, Turn Here. And that, that night when we were out there in Oakland, we made that left on Foothill Boulevard and we came across the Eastmont Mall parking lot. And to our surprise, we had no idea what we were driving ourselves into, but there was like thousands of people out there. It was just thousands of black faces everywhere having fun. People were out there just talking with each other. Uh, cars had music pounding. It was a festive environment. It was something that as young black teens, we felt welcome. Like this is some, something that, that we identified with. This was cool. And back then it wasn't really a, there wasn't really a big, push on doing donuts. Somebody might do a donut here or there, but it was really just to show off that their car can do it, not necessarily 
just make it a, a show about doing donuts. It was always about being clean. And the the overall goal, the overall objective for us as being young males, you know, we're trying to talk to females. We're trying to talk to girls out there, essentially. that's That was what was on our mind. And so we picked up on what this was about real quick. It made us want to go back to the drawing board and say, okay, if I want to catch some attention out there, I got I to gotta step it up. I got to be a little more clean out there. Um, back then, we, we used to pull up in a little bucket, basically a little beat up little car. I had a 77 Toyota Celica, and I drove it out there. It was bright orange, and we did not want to be seen in it. So we parked it blocks away and walked up to it. And we were out there for like hours. And it was something that when we came back to San Francisco to talk about, it was just, it was, it was so unbelievable. Hearing you talk about it makes me want to go to one like tonight. It's definitely like one of those stories where you hear and you're like, I want to see it for myself. And I mean, I'm not a super experienced sideshow goer by any means, but I've walked by a couple and it is genuinely this like electric energy. Like the, the excitement is very contagious. <laughs> and it's funny that you bring up also just like the role that music played in that, because I remember when I was driving up to Berkeley, because um, I came to the Bay Area when I was a UC Berkeley student, and I was driving up with my parents from Los Angeles, seeing the Oakland sign, and my mind immediately went to E40, and that song like, Tell Me When To Go, Ghost Ride The Whip, Ghost Ride The Whip, like over and over again. Ghost Ride The Whip, Ghost Ride The Whip. Ghost ride the wind. Ghost ride the wind. And that was, I, it was just something that I was like, I'd seen that music video a million times. I was like, yeah, that's like, oh, I didn't realize that Berkeley was so close to Oakland, but that's so cool. Like seeing the freeway signs coming into Berkeley and yeah. just that's definitely like part of the first, the first images that came to my mind when I like thought of the Bay Area. It's, it's a very, it, it, this, this thing has such huge potential um, that I think sometimes uh, folks might undervalue it. Um, but that's that's what we set out to do with with the Sideways Project was to really help give people the visual of what this is and create this conversation of what it should be or what it could be, and that's that's pretty much the role that we have kind of stepped into now, being being that um, you know we're we're pretty much have the the most extensive knowledge of the history of sideshows. Um, as these events have now spread across the entire country, I think the conversation has just grown bigger now. The conversation isn't just about what to do about it in East Oakland, but it's also like, how can we create solutions that can also apply to Los Angeles, to Detroit, to Toronto, Atlanta, to Florida? All of these different areas have events that they're outright calling sideshows or events that that's are similar in activities as sideshows. But overall, we're talking about this, um, this identity of urban motorsports, of what happens to motorsport enthusiasts, what happens with motorsport enthusiasts in an urban environment. If you ever get a chance to watch the documentaries, just to kind of inform uh, listeners, in it, he shows a lot of really awesome B-roll of the sideshows and people doing tricks and you can see the cars and you can really see what it's about from an on-the-ground setting. 
But you also get into some of the punitive measures um, from Oakland PD through the years and different ways that city government has kind of addressed the sideshow because there is this perception that the sideshows are tied to violence. Without getting too dark, can we kind of get into that a little bit? Why you think sideshows are often associated with violence and then what the effect of kind of punitive measures has been on the sideshow? Yeah, I want to start with pointing out something that it's, it's, it's not common knowledge, although it should be. Um, at every single major sporting event, there is violence whether it's reported on the news or not, there is violence. If you've ever been to a football game, there's violence, whether it's in the seats or in the parking lot. Uh, same thing with baseball games. We've, we've heard of some very serious, uh, uh, you know, acts of violence that happen in those parking lots. But that doesn't define the sport of baseball. That doesn't define the majority, the overwhelming majority of people that come out to enjoy the sport. Sideshows are, are, are no different. They suffer from some of the same headaches. Um, the overall majority of people come out because they're looking for excitement. They're looking to have some fun. They're looking to be around other people. Um, but there are knuckleheads everywhere. And to define an entire culture based on the minority that, 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 are, that are associated with them to me, is a crime all in itself. So mm -hmm. the biggest entity that has branded sideshows as like this, this, this just thing that's just so horrible has, has been the news stories that we see constantly with no type of context to put into what the sideshow is um, and, and no real meaningful discussions about what some, what some of the things that we can do with it. And so that's that's kind of um, you know to to kind of give you a little bit of a, a backstory on why the sideshows are viewed the way they are. We represent an entire culture of folks that 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 want to be able to enjoy motorsports the same way everybody else does across the nation. Every single car commercial that you see now shows a car doing donuts. But when we're talked about in our communities as as folks that are in East Oakland doing some of the same activities that Ford or GM or Dodge is doing in their commercials to sell you that car. When we do it, it's deemed illegal, violent, disruptive, you know, give me a negative adjective. And that's what they're throwing on a whole entire culture. And that's part of the reasoning why you're behind this idea of, of quote unquote, legalizing the sideshow. That's kind of a, a misnomer of uh, just to say legalize the sideshow, but that's the way that people kind of talk about it. Can you explain what that means, what that would look like, and why you think it might be a good idea in terms of addressing sideshows that happen unregulated in a random intersection? Yeah, for, first and foremost, um, you know, just to be clear that we don't represent illegal activities at all. Our goal is to take the experience that's loved about the sideshows and bring it into a safe and sanctioned venue. We want people to be able to come out, enjoy motorsports, enjoy the experience of, of authentic 
Oakland culture and be able to have something to talk about tomorrow and come back to it again. It's a very complicated social uh, uh, issue, more complicated in, in, in its, the solution is more complicated than just throwing more police at it. Mm-hmm. Um, so this, this is what we're talking about when, when we're saying a, a sideshow venue, uh, by bringing the elements, the responsible elements, creating a venue that's more of a celebration for those who are, who are responsible, not a venue for those who want to be reckless and, and you know, essentially mess, mess stuff up. It's something I would call like a, a harm reduction mm-hmm. approach. And it's something that, I mean, in terms of harm reduction approaches, that's an idea that San Francisco is very familiar with. Um, I was looking when Gavin Newsom was mayor, for example, and there was an issue of too many people skating down by the Embarcadero in Pier 7. He started an initiative to open up a lot of legal skate parks. Uh, this approach has also been taken to drag racing, for example, in San Diego, where they set up a nonprofit racetrack um, in the parking lot of what used to be called Qualcomm Stadium, the big stadium that they are tearing down now, unfortunately, in San Diego. Um, but it's the same idea. It was to give people a legal alternative to go uh, drag race instead of racing in the streets. And basically what Yap is talking about is applying that to the idea of sideshows. It's definitely an interesting concept. We haven't really tried it in the Bay Area for sideshows for whatever reason, but it's something that Yap's been talking about for about 20 years now. Yeah, it's, it's what we would call the common sense solution. For sure. Well, to end the podcast on a little bit of a lighter note, what would you say is your favorite sideshow memory or, or most interesting sideshow memory? I would, I would go back to a scene that was, that was on the Sideways documentary. Um, and this scene happened at the parking lot down on Hagenberger. Big, huge parking lot. It used to be, a, I think it used to be a pack and save. And it's the middle of the night. It had to be about one, maybe two o'clock in the morning. And there were so many people out there. It was just so thick that you would just, you would get lost in there. You probably wouldn't even be able to find, find your car if, if you got too lost into that crowd. <laughs> and there happened to be an RV parked in there. And I, I remember knocking on the RV. I think there might've been like a football game in the morning. So there's usually like a lot of RVs around in the morning. So I'm banging on the RV door because I'm, you know, I'm trying to be polite. So I wanted to ask the guy, can I climb up on top of this RV so I can get some good footage? Uh-huh. And he was cool with it. So I'm on top of his RV. And then I could really see how many people there was, was thousands of folks. And I just remember shooting that night and remembering like, like, wow, so many thousands of people, not one single fight. And the night just like ended without any type of a, of a serious incident at all. I mean, by the time the police came, people just kind of just walked back to the cars. It wasn't really a big deal mm-hmm. and left. And that I think when I saw that, that gave me the idea, like, you know, this is something worth, this is something worth fighting for right here. I, I think uh, we're, we're seeing something that does not want to be, um, you know, doesn't want to be uh, clamped down on. And, you know, just reiterate again, we, we're, we're, we're here with solutions, workable solutions. Contact us. Let's chat. Um, 
city of Oakland. Let's chat. I look forward to having these discussions uh, because there's there's some real some real results that we can attain through thinking about this completely different. And when that happens, I will be waiting in the wings to write about it. <laughs> I'm gonna make sure you're in the passenger seat, <laughs> if if not ready to drive. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today to explain. Uh, your documentaries and your philosophy on the sideshows to our listeners. I really appreciate it. No problem. Thanks for having me, Bronca. Thanks so much for tuning into this week's slightly unusual edition of the SF Weekly Podcast. While our regular producer and editor, Nick Ronan, is away. This episode was co-hosted by me, Grace Lee, and my co-writer, Ben Schneider. Mike Huguenor is our audio engineer, and Veronica Irwin produced her own segment for this show. For more hot takes, deep dives, and alternative views on San Francisco news, subscribe to SF Weekly on Apple, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. Have a nice day and see you next week! <laughs>